You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. And our guest is John D. Levinson. And we're going to talk about resurrection in the Hebrew Bible, which is... Uh, it sounds maybe odd, like, where is resurrection? I thought that was just a Christian thing, but he's written a couple of books about this, and he's just a fascinating guy. Uh, he, he is um, the Albert A. List, as an endowed professorship of Jewish studies at Harvard University. He's been there since 1990, uh, 1988, rather. And, uh, you know, it, I, I mean this with all sincerity. It's, it's one of the privileges of my educational life to have had uh, John Levinson as a professor and to have him part of my dissertation committee. And I'm not just throwing names out. I mean, this, uh, I learned a lot from uh, John and from his colleague at the time, James Kugel, um, also a Jewish scholar, and uh, they screwed up my life royally. That's why I can't get in jobs all the best anywhere. Ways. In all the best ways. Uh, but no, no nothing like... Um, talking to knowledgeable Jews about their tradition to make you think about your own. And I know many Christians who have had that same path. So uh, for me, it's just a thrill to have John on the podcast to talk about things, uh, about resurrection and that topic that, you know, is, is obviously super important for Christians. And uh, yeah, that's, that's how about you, Jared? Have you ever yeah, heard of this guy? I, I have because yeah. of Pete. I mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, but uh, Pete was trying to get out of some work. Whenever I had him as a professor and ended up uh, reading most everything that, that John's written. And it, it probably was, again, not to, not to speak, not to overstate it, but I think it was his work that really interest, made me interested in, in the Hebrew Bible entirely. I mean, his books were just amazing and interesting. And he went down nooks and crannies of the Hebrew Bible in just this carefree way. You could tell, and you'll see on the on the podcast, just how robust his knowledge of the Hebrew Bible is. He's he's flipping back and forth between Hebrew and English like it's nothing. Uh, he knows all these texts in and out, and uh, so just really love that. And then the you know the books we're going to be talking about today: Resurrection and the Restoration of Israel, and the Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. Just both tremendous texts. I mean, everything he wrote. Mm-hmm. It's just really good. Well, and I just one last thing, you know, uh, that that I f- have found really, I don't unique is probably an overstatement, but one thing that attracted me, especially after I left school and started thinking on my own about stuff, how good John is at bringing together Jewish tradition, the theological let's say, message of the Hebrew Bible, but also historical critical scholarship. And those three things are sort of working together. And I realized one day that that's sort of what I do from a Christian point of view. And I didn't get that out of nowhere. I sort of, that was modeled for me without even realizing what it was doing. It's, you know, the Christian tradition, but how historical criticism informs how we look at that tradition theologically. And and those three, three things are always in this this uneasy but yet also very profitable symbiotic relationship. Yeah, and speaking about how he is doing that work, you know, those two books that I just mentioned are pretty, I mean, they're pretty thick and dense books, yes. but he wrote Creation and the Persistence of Evil. Which is a and, great book. And Sinai and Zion, right. I think, are both good intro mm-hmm. text for anyone who hasn't uh, read anything by Professor Levinson. Maybe pick up one of those. Right. Sinai those and are Zion. the places to go. That's where he melds together this critical historical scholarship, Jewish tradition, and also the theology of the text. And you don't always get people doing that. You know, historical criticism and theology and your own religious tradition don't always sit together well. But for, for uh, Levinson, they do, they have to, and he does just a great job that, that like I said, models a lot for uh, what I try to sort of do in my own way. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into our conversation with uh, John Levinson. By resurrection... I don't mean immortality. I don't mean the immortality of the soul. I don't mean people avoid death. In the case of resurrection, uh, there's there's no avoidance of death. It's the overcoming of death. Death is over. Death is real. It takes place. It's grievous. It's sad, and it's reversed miraculously through an act of God. 
Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Bible for Normal People. Our guest today is John D. Levinson. John, thank you for joining us here on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I admire your whole initiative. And this is a thrill for you, isn't it? Tremendous, tremendous. (laughs) This is the most thrilled I've been in the last hour, I would guess. Yeah, me me too. Can I I just share a quick story, John? The the thrill for me was when I was actually, Pete was my professor, and we had to pick a theologian, and we had to read every, I think he was just trying to get out of work, because the whole (laughs) class was just, read everything that person's ever written and then present to the class. So basically the class was just all these other people presenting information rather uh-huh. than, than Pete. But anyway, I, I picked you and I realized that you were clearly still active in writing and all these things. So I actually reached out to you and we had a little inter interchange about some of your ideas and just really appreciated your, oh, thank you. I appreciate your it. No, you know, you never know when you write something where anyone actually reads it or has any effect anywhere. Yeah. yeah, well, I, I read all of it because Pete made me. So, Well, that, that's, a, that's a good sign for somebody. Maybe, I don't know whether it's he or you or me. <laughs> but the truth is that, uh, you know, you, you put a book out there in the world, you have no idea who's reading right. it, what effect it might have. So I'm honored that both of you were that interested in it. Oh, absolutely. Well, so I have the, the first question, the big question I have for you is, you know, I, I got to Harvard in 1989, and you were one of my professors. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. I remember I came the year before. That's right. Did you know that I was coming already? Is that why you came? That's the only reason I came. Yeah. So here's the question. See, I graduated in 1994. You were oh, that I didn't know. I thought you were still there. No. <laughs> well, I was, that's, that explains what I was going to ask you. Like, did you think of quitting at that point? Well, you graduated in five years. That's a 90-day wonder in terms of the program you're in. The program you're in, people, let's put it this way. We have students... Uh, who are paying the tuition on Social Security. You know, in other words, <laughs> we actually give tenure to graduate students, you know? Well, I had some people writing my dissertation for me. If you, no, that's good. They did a good job. If you can get out in five years. I remember you were writing on the plagues narrative and the exodus in the Wisdom of Solomon, right? That's right, yeah. I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. Was I actually on, was I actually on the committee? I read it at the time. I must have been on the committee. You were. Yeah. You yeah. were the second reader. James yeah, was, was it was quite good. That was quite good. Yeah. So, uh, but really, five. No, joking aside, five years is fast. Uh, many people in the same program, if Jared knows this, many people in the same program take 10, 12, 13 years. Wow. I was motivated. Yeah, good. I had a family. That makes a difference. Yeah, it does make a difference. So. All right, enough about Pete and his No, let's family. talk more about let's me. Um, jump into this topic. Okay, hey, listen, okay here, here's why you're here with us today, to talk about resurrection in the Hebrew Bible, which is probably a foreign concept for 
a lot of the listeners of this podcast and a lot of Christians that I know. I mean, you know, resurrection is sort of a big deal for Christianity. You've no, if, if you haven't noticed that, if your research hasn't taken you that far, resurrection is sort of a big deal. Yeah, the, I, that's what I've read. In fact, I think I read it in a book I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Several books. Well, see, that's my point. See, um, you've read a, written a couple of books with the word resurrection in the title, and I've read them both more than once. They're fascinating. They made me think a lot. And I thought it'd be sort of fun to share with our listeners, you know, what role, I mean, I even had to ask the question, what role does resurrection play in the Old Testament? What does it even mean? You know, resurrection is a big deal for Christianity. How does it filter into Judaism? Let's say, you know, after the Second Temple period and rabbinic Judaism, things like this. It's such a, it's such a central issue that Christians talk about and live and die over. But, uh, you know, but we don't it, often associate it with the Old Testament. We don't. Or more people try to find proof texts in the Old Testament right. for why Jesus had to rise from the dead. And I keep telling them they're not there. Not really. Yeah, I, 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 I should just say parenthetically, I'm never impressed with arguments about how God had to do this or that in order right. to secure his goals. I don't know who determines what God has to do. If he violates those rules, uh, who's going to hold him to it? In other words, I think a lot of these arguments people make about God had to do it this way, not that way, right. really are uh, underestimating divine omnipotence. Yeah. But that's a parenthesis. Well, the answer, I mean, the question is, of course, when I use the word resurrection, as in my uh, resurrection, the restoration of Israel, uh, at one level, it's a come on, because the, the, the standard view is, there is no resurrection in the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament. Uh, that's something at best, at the, at the very latest, it comes at the very latest period in, uh, in that collection of books and uh, is a post-biblical phenomenon. And that often goes along with the idea that it's a foreign phenomenon. It comes in from Zoroastrianism. It comes in from the Greeks uh, who really didn't have it. Uh, that's the sort of standard view. Um, in rabbinic Judaism, it's a, uh, a major defining doctrine, so much so the Mishnah, which is a collection, Jewish collection, a collection of rabbinic law put together about the year 200, 220 of the Common Era. It actually defines as a heretic who has no place in the world to come, someone who denies that resurrection can be found in the Torah, right. actually in the Pentateuch. So it's a defining doctrine of, of Judaism until modern times when liberal Judaism, non-Orthodox Judaism, began trying to play it down, reinterpret it, or do away with it altogether. So you can find uh, less emphasis. So the average, the average American Jew, who is really quite secular, uh, the average modern Jew is really quite secular, is going to tell you there is no uh, resurrection or in Judaism. Uh, many of them will actually tell you that. I've, I've had people who should know better tell me that sort of thing. But it's a, it's a central liturgically affirmed uh, normative doctrine of classical rabbinic Judaism. It's even in the daily letter, liturgy, even you are faithful to uh, revive, resuscitate, resurrect the dead. That's actually said by the uh, traditional observant Jew uh, a couple times a day. Hmm. Uh, so my question always is with a lot of my research, well, what is it, how do you move from this biblical material to this rabbinic material? I think the standard answer that says, no, it's, it comes in later, it comes in through Zoroastrianism, it's a foreign thing, it's, or it comes in in response to a particular crisis, namely the death of innocent martyrs in the time of the Maccabees, all that I find a little uh, simplistic. The more I looked into it, the more I realized there is a promise of life throughout the Hebrew Bible. There is a promise of, of life, uh, life for those who are faithful to God, life for those who, who fulfill his covenant, covenant, uh, life for those who are faithful and in fulfilling the commandments of the suzerain deity, uh, this life for those in a book like Proverbs who follow uh, uh, the, the paths of wisdom, who walk in the pathways of wisdom. Uh, so you have a promise of life, and then you have something else which I call the fact of death. The fact is that people die, that they are mortal, they die. On the other hand, there is a divine rhetoric of, of uh of uh, life, and then there are also cases in the Bible in which God does resurrect people from the dead. Uh, in some cases, like Enoch in Genesis uh, 5, or uh, Elijah in whatever it is, first, uh, second Kings uh, uh, 2, I think it is, uh, you don't, uh, the person seems to avoid death. Seems conceivably can be interpreted to have avoided death. There are other cases, though, where God brings people back from the dead, 
Uh, and I'm thinking about Elijah and Elisha, and uh, really three episodes in the Elijah-Elisha uh, narrative where somebody um, uh, is actually brought back from the dead. Uh, I think of hymnic assertions such as in the Song of Moses in Genesis, uh, excuse me, De Deuteronomy 32, or in the Song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, where the statement is made, God brings up from Sheol, he brings people up from the, from the netherworld. He, 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 he kills and also he, he brings to life. So there was always a, a faith and a confidence in God's capacity to reverse death, along with a, a belief that mortality is part of the, is the normal human uh, condition. So to me, those two things had to, had, both had to be brought into the equation. You can't just say, oh, people died, that was the end of it. That's not looking at the theology which affirms God's power over death and affirms uh, that, that uh, God has promised life to those who are faithful to him and carry out his commandments. Um, that, that struck me as one of the, the key dynamics that the standard view did not take uh, into account. And so I, I began to think, well, if you, if you look at that, then things become more complicated. You look at that, now you begin to realize that uh, <clears throat> there, the view of life and death is a little more complicated in the Hebrew Bible than people usually think. For example, there does seem to me there is a promise of, uh, and, and a fulfilled promise of immortality. It's immortality to the human race in the covenant with Noah in Genesis 9. I, a continuation, a promise of continuation, uh, a brit olam, an eternal covenant, perhaps an unconditional covenant, a promissory covenant made with Abraham uh, about the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, Jacob, and uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the people of Israel are promised uh, continuation. Uh, uh, there are promises that overcome sin and overcome the, the, the whatever else might cause death, like the promise to uh, David that uh, can over, that, that, that uh, cannot cancel the dynastic ownership of the throne by the house of David. An individual Davidic king may sin and be punished, but, they, but there is an unconditional promise. All that strikes me as, a, a, as complicating the standard image that says, oh, people die, end of, of subject. And there's one other thing that I think is, um, complicates the matter considerably. And that is the standard view is when you died in the Hebrew Bible, you went to Sheol, you went to this underworld, S-H-E-O-L, usually translated, uh, transliterated into English. Mm -hmm. You die and you go, everybody goes to Sheol, which is a, a dank, dark netherworld, uh, unconnected uh, to God, uh, where God is unavailable, a miserable place where people don't praise God. Now, I'm not the first scholar to say this, uh, but uh, I think that's an overgeneralization. Do you mean to tell me that when the author describes the death of somebody like Abraham in Genesis 25 or Job in Job 42, they describe the person as, as, as old and contented and filled up with life, and then he dies at a ripe old age after seeing his descendants to the third or fourth generation. Do you mean to tell me the author writing that actually thinks the person about whom he's writing is right now as he writes it in some dark, dank, miserable netherworld? Uh, I don't think so. I think there is the language of Sheol, and certain people go to Sheol, they go to the netherworld. And then there's the language of, what should we call it, lying with one's fathers, sleeping with one's fathers, being buried with one's family, uh, that uh, defines what I would call a fortunate death. There's already a difference in how people die. I think those who die, who goes to Sheol? Those who go to Sheol are those who, are, uh, who die prematurely, die brokenhearted, die without descendants, uh, or deny, die violently, die outside the uh, grace of God, die uh, being punished by God, uh, die uh, without uh, proper burial, they go to Sheol. It's not exactly the same thing, let's say, as Christian hell, because you can go there. I don't recommend you do, but you can go there. Uh, uh, well, maybe by the end of the interview, I will recommend that. Uh, you can go there uh, without having sinned, you know, say sin, if you broke it out, Jacob thinks he's going to go there when he thinks Joseph is dead at the end of Genesis 37. Uh, it doesn't mean he's sinned, he's brokenhearted, he's lost a descendant, he's lost a chance for a continuation. Mm -hmm. he, will, he will go to Sheol. That's what he thinks. Uh, and then his spirit returns to him and life returns to him when he finds out Joseph is alive a couple of chapters later. Uh, that's, that's one possibility. 
uh, that's who goes there. But other people, and I gave Abraham and, and uh, Job as the examples, uh, live a fulfilled life. And there's no language, the language of, of sleeping with your fathers and so forth doesn't mix with the language of Sha'ol. I don't think they thought everybody who died, died in, in the unfortunate circumstances of those who go to Sha'ol. I think there's already a differentiation. It's not the differentiation of heaven and hell and resurrection of the dead, and one is, is sent one place, one is sent the other place that you have in Daniel 12 and other places like that in the Hebrew Bible and in Jewish apocalyptic and early uh, Christian literature and so on and so on, but there is a differentiation there. I think it's a great overgeneralization to say everybody goes to Sheol. Law codes, when they describe capital punishment, never mention Sheol. Uh, hmm. All is a, is a highly emotional term. People plead not to uh, not to go to Sheol. Uh, Sheol comes up primarily in poetry and uh, it's uh, and some cases in some ways by writing the poetry in some cases in the psalms people claim to be or have confidence that to came to have been brought back by god from Sheol, or plead with god to do that or, or, or express the confidence that god will not send them to Sheol. so i think it's a more complicated uh, view of the end of life uh, than uh, is people usually see it as being i, I would just conclude this part by saying that uh, I think Shaol is the continuation of the unfulfilled life, the life of the person who's lost a child uh, or, or uh, dies prematurely or brokenhearted and so forth. That's the unfulfilled life, and the unfulfilled life continues on the other side of the grave, so to speak, in the grave, in this dark, dank, uh, miserable netherworld. But those who have a fulfilled life, like Abraham and Job, or for that matter, Moses, Moses, who, who sleeps with his fathers, even though literally he's not in a family grave, uh, he lives a fulfilled life. He sees the promised land. He's done his, his job. And I don't think any biblical author thought that, that, that Moses, upon death, then went, his shade then went scurrying down to that miserable underworld. That's, I think, a, a critical difference that eventually, with a lot of other changes and a lot of other factors coming in, eventuates in the uh, notion of the resurrection of the dead with some sent to a positive place and some sent to a negative place. So uh, going down that road, just picking up on some of the language you used of eventually or already we see, there seems to be inherent in what you're talking about, like a development or a dynamism within the text that these concepts are actually changing as we move along historically through the, the compilation of the Hebrew Bible. And so first, is that, is that the case? Is that the, the idea that you would bring to it that um, there's, a, there's an evolution or a development of this concept? And then how does that tie to maybe how that concept gets developed in rabbinic Judaism versus how it gets developed within the Christian faith? And how, how do those connect to this, this dynamic understanding of resurrection? Yeah, those are big and appropriate questions. I think there is a change over time, uh, and that's that you can use a term like evolution of doctrine or whatever. But I also think that early on in poems that look to me to be relatively early, like Deuteronomy 32 or the Song of Hannah in in 1 Samuel 2, uh, there is this confidence that God can and does bring people up from Sheol. Uh, you could say it's just an exaggeration, or what they mean by Sheol is only illness, to which I would say I think the difference between grave illness and death is less in the minds of ancient Israelites than it is in our minds. Mm. It's a less, a less, a less dramatic a difference. Uh, uh, so I think that, that there is this, this hymnic affirmation that shows up in a number of places of God's control over life and death, and a few narratives that have God or his is appointed agent like Elijah bringing people back from the dead, or Elisha, especially in Second Kings 4, bringing that child back from the dead. The child, the narrator, clearly thinks that child in Second Kings 4 has died. He uses that term, mate, he's dead. He's, uh, and, uh, but the prophet uh, Elisha, or however you pronounce it in English, Elisha, brings him back from the, from the dead. There are these, they're not surprised that God has that power. It's just not the normal thing. What eventually develops the big evolutionary change is it comes to be expected in the end time. And that's where we have to understand what resurrection is. By resurrection, I don't mean immortality. I don't mean the immortality of the soul. I don't mean people avoid death. Uh, 
In the case of resurrection, uh, there's, there's no avoidance of death. It's the overcoming of death. Death is, over, death is real, it takes place, it's grievous, it's sad, and it's reversed miraculously through an act of God. By immortality, people are usually looking inward to human nature, some immortal core of the human being, usually called the soul that doesn't die. Now, when you get to the Second Temple, the late Second Temple, and rabbinic and early Christian material and into Islam, you can have both. You can have an expectation of the resurrection of the dead at the same time as you have an understanding of human beings as having some immortal soul. Those two things are not in contradiction. But by resurrection, I'm talking about a dramatic, miraculous intervention of God that occurs at the end of time, uh, collectively, and uh, in the Hebrew Bible, it's very much connected to what I call the restoration of Israel, the restoration and redemption of the people of Israel, uh, the renewal of the people of Israel, their return to the land of Israel, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, etc., etc. So I think the big change that you're asking about, the big evolutionary change, is the increasing dominance of apocalyptic with its expectation of an inversion of the way things are, that the last shall be first and so forth. The rich become poor, the poor become rich, etc. Uh, a, a dramatic divine intervention in which even in which the infirmities of human life are healed, the blind see, the, uh, the uh, mute sing, the lame dance, and eventually the dead uh, live. These are all uh, in terms of the technology of the time. Now, John, you, you mentioned uh, the word apocalyptic. Yeah. Uh, two things. Maybe just give a quick definition of what that means. And you also located that historically, like there's a shift where there's a turn towards apocalyptic. Explain that because that seems really important for this more recognizable way of thinking about resurrection that you're right. getting into once you get to later periods. So what, what is apocalyptic and like when, when does that shift sort of happen and why do you think it happens? Uh, that's a huge question. All I mean by apocalyptic is uh, maybe the term apocalyptic eschatology would be more appropriate. I generally try to avoid the term eschatology because people confuse it with scatology. <laughs> and the opposite of eschatology, which is the doctrine of end times, is protology, which is the doctrine of earliest times. Uh, primordial times, but sometimes people confuse protology with proctology, and they yeah. confuse. I know Jared does. Actually, I do. I'm getting to that. Common age. mistake. Yeah, it's a common mistake. And plus, you have the fact that you know the Library of Congress puts biblical studies under BS. They put Jewish studies under BM. So you, you start getting mixed up with the scatological stuff. But what I mean by eschatology is the doctrine of end times. In, in apocalyptic uh, apocalyptic expectation is uh, an expectation of a dramatic miraculous intervention of God into the order of things that uh, results in the triumph of, of his will and the establishment of what, and the fulfillment of his promises, in spite of all the appearances that that won't happen or, or, or can't happen. So it's not the end of the world, but it's the renewing, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, because I, I know a lot of young people with video games, that they hear the word apocalyptic, and we hear things like apocalyptic scenarios, which doesn't mean yeah. a shift, it means everything is destroyed. Yeah, it, well, in a lot of apocalyptic literature, uh, there is combat, there is war, there's sometimes war between the forces of good and the forces of bad, and you know, the sons of light and the sons of darkness, or God and, and, and diabolical figures. In other words, that common uh, popular use of apocalyptic is not totally discontinuous with ancient apocalyptic expectation, where that, that era of peace and goodwill and the human flourishing often does follow a divine, a, a, a hideous combat and some really bloody, gory scenes. Think of something like the War of Gog and Magog in, in Ezekiel 38-39 to and so forth. Uh, but what I mean primarily is not so much the end of the world as a, a, a expectation of a future radical transformation. But if you look at a text like the song of Hannah that I keep referring to in 1 Samuel 2, you see they're already there, and it's already liturgically affirmed that God does those things. That God, uh, you know, uh, uh, makes the, uh, the uh, uh, barren woman a, a mother and so forth. Um, so uh, at a certain point, I would guess, 
6th, 5th century BCE, this becomes increasingly dominant. For whatever reason, it becomes increasingly dominant. It's not the only form of Jewish literature. Not everybody necessarily believes in it or walks around expecting this. But it is a, it is, there's a significant amount of literature from that period in which there is this expectation of a dramatic inversion of things mm-hmm. and a healing of infirmities and a vindication of those faithful to God and a vindication of God's justice and power, which have been very much in doubt for a long time, largely because of the exile uh, and the absence of uh, Jewish sovereignty and so forth and so on. Uh, so uh, I think that apocalyptic, I, th- I think that the resurrection of the dead grows out of that apocalyptic eschatology, that expectation at the end of times there will be a, uh, an, an inversion of things uh, such that the infirmities are healed. And one of the infirmities that's healed, I think, is, is, uh, the, uh, is death itself. Death itself. And there's that, that long-standing promise of life, promise of life collectively to the Jewish people, promise of life to those who walk in the paths of, of righteousness or of wisdom, that that finally will become the empirical reality, which it hasn't been up till now, uh, through this expectation. So that's what I mean really by yeah. resurrection. And, you know, that's, that's not too dissimilar from, like, echoes of Paul, right. who was Jewish, by the way, right? I mean, you know, death is the enemy that's defeated, and, yeah. and oh, that's think, not unique Christian language. I think it, oh, definitely not. I think it was uh, the... Uh, I believe Swiss uh, New Testament scholar Ernst Kesemann, who said that apocalyptic is the mother of all Christian theology. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. I would just add one, one adjective there. I would say Jewish apocalyptic is the mother, at least of, uh, of about 95% of New Testament uh, theology. Right. Uh, Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double-action combination of prescriptive-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. I know I think people who talk about the historical Jesus today or people talk about Paul see the, this uh, apocalyptic eschatology suffusing uh, uh, the uh, early Christian uh, movement. Uh, so whatever, however else Paul may have differed from some of the forms of Judaism of his time, there he certainly fits in with the Jewish um, mm-hmm. perspective. I have to say, though, that, you know, they say in Israel, show me 
two Jews, I'll show you three political parties. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure I totally agree with that. Uh, but the, um, you can't just say, well, all Jews were walking around expecting an apocalyptic uh, event. Uh, they're all expecting the resurrection of the dead. Certainly there were uh, parties, factions, whatever you call it, in Second Temple times, uh, which uh, did not believe in this and which continued to believe the, in the older model in which the justice of God is realized in history through successive generations uh, and uh, uh, the, in which uh, individuals die and remain dead. And uh, I think Ben Sira, uh, the uh, wisdom of uh, something called Sirach or, or uh, Ecclesiasticus in Catholic circles, is an example of a book that does not have a belief in the resurrection of the dead. Mm -hmm. Kohelet or Ecclesiastes is a book that I think probably knows of such expectation and doesn't believe in it. Doesn't believe in it, right? Doesn't believe in it. It's the same thing over and over again. It's the most, I think Kohelet's the most anti-apocalyptic book imaginable. Whatever it is, whatever you expect to be in the future, it's already been. It just keeps going around and around. There's just a cycle, a circle, goes around and around. Don't expect a definitive end, a breaking through of God, uh, a, a dramatic intervention. Uh, such things have happened and they don't last and everything just goes around and around in circles. So it certainly was, the views attributed to the Sadducees in the New Testament certainly do reflect the way a fair number of, of uh, Jews in late Second Temple times thought. I always say, I always tell my classes that uh, Judaism in, in, in late Second Temple times was significantly different from Judaism today in that in late Second Temple times, the Jews had a lot more sects than they have today. <laughs> and so the Sadducees and Pharisees... Do you research into that? Or, uh... I don't have personal experience of it, but that's what I, <laughs> that's what I understand to be the case. <laughs> so, I mean... Mm. I think you said something that you went over really quickly, but I think our, our listeners, it might do well to, to slow down and take that because what I just heard you say was it's okay that different books of our Hebrew Bible, different books of the Old Testament actually has different conceptions of the afterlife. And maybe even within books, we find different conceptions of resurrection or what happens when you die. And uh, I just think that's important to to state because I think a lot of people, that'll be a new idea that the Bible can say different things about death and what happens after Yeah, death. No, that's absolutely right. It says different things. So the rabbis, for example, as I mentioned earlier, have this notion, at least in one version, they actually say, uh, the uh, a person who denies that the resurrection of the dead, team, is in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books, has no place in the world to come, which of course is a, a wonderful turn of phrase, uh, you know, if you deny there is an afterlife, you have no afterlife. Uh, but uh, that does seem appropriate. Uh, but the, uh, uh, so how do you find it in the, how do you find the resurrection of the dead in the first five books of Moses? And so they have various techniques they use to find it there. They don't correspond to the plain sense of the text in, by modern standards, or even plain sense, I think, by even pre-modern standards. Uh, they're midrashic, they're, uh, they're uh, homiletical, or whatever you want to call it. Imagine. Creative, maybe? Yeah, creative, creative, uh, theologically driven. So it says, you know, God promised the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they never took the land. Their, their descendants took the land. Or God says you should give certain things to Aaron. Well, guess what? Aaron passed away, in case you noticed that. Uh, but when they say that, I think in the ancient, I have a, in my book, Resurrection of the Restoration of Israel, I have a, a whole section on this. The conception of the self in ancient Israel was more collective, corporate, and familial than our modern conception of the self. So that a person was not a, an isolated, atomized individual, as is often the case in the modern West. A person was embedded in a family and the, a promise to an ancestor could be totally fulfilled uh, with nothing outstanding by being brought about for the descendant, for the descendant of Aaron, the Kohen, the priest, uh, the hereditary priest from the house of Aaron, uh, or by the Jewish people descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though they're long gone. So that, I think, makes, makes a, a, a critical difference. To the rabbis, though, eager to find this apocalyptic expectation of a future uh, uh, you know, resurrection in the Bible, those texts that talk about what, what you have to do in the future for these people who have passed away, that, to them, is proof of the resurrection of the dead. 
even in Exodus 15.1, it says, Az Yashir Moshe, and God, uh, Moses and the Israelites sang this song, right, the song at the sea in Exodus 15. And they look at this Az Yashir, and they interpret it in terms of the grammar of the time when they're writing, or speaking, teaching, uh, rabbinic Hebrew. And they say, well, Yashir, that's future tense. You ask an Israeli today, they say, oh, Yashir, it means he will sing. We Moses will sing that. How come Moses will sing that? And so they say, well, that's proof of the resurrection of the dead. Proof of the resurrection of the dead is that Moses is going to sing this. So think about it for a minute. On the one hand, that's a, that's a grammatical mistake at a certain pedestrian level. In biblical Hebrew, that expression, Az Yashir, could mean just he sang, past tense, past punctive, preterite. You don't have to have any future expectation. But to the rabbis, the song of the sea really comes in its own, into its own when it's sung after the resurrection of the dead, which is the rabbi who made that midrash, it's only, uh, it only comes into its own when there, the redemption that it celebrates has taken place after the resurrection of the dead. Moses and the Israelites, having been resurrected from the dead, now sing that song. Is that the plain sense of Exodus 15.1? Absolutely not. On the other hand, it is a very theologically productive notion, and uh, it shows you how embedded this expectation of a future resurrection was in classical Talmudic Judaism. Well, I mean, it reminds me of Jesus' argument, I think it was in Luke 20, I think, where he's arguing with the Sadducees about the resurrection, and he appeals to Exodus 3, 6, on the God of Abraham, Isaac, right. and Jacob, and it's as, as, quote, proof for resurrection. And, you know, we talk about that in some of my classes with my undergrads, and they say, what do you think about that? And they say, well, I don't know what to think. And I said, well, Luke says the crowd loved it. They thought it was a really good argument. <laughs> right, right. No, that's right, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, are in some sense alive. Now, maybe they think that has to do with immortality. It's like going to the bosom of Abraham and so forth. Maybe they think that they're still alive in, some, in the presence of God somehow, uh, or they expect them to be resurrected uh, from the dead. Uh, but the fact that not, clearly in a text like that, death does not have the finality it right. has today. So that would be a New Testament example of the sort of midrash, the sort of interpretation I'm talking about. It's not the plain sense of the verses in Exodus 3. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it is very, very theologically productive in both the case of Jerusalem. And, and again, to, to make the point, I, I think to underscore this for maybe our listeners, you know, Jesus saying that it's, it's pre-Rabbinic Judaism. Right. So there's something already in the air Unless we want to assume that Jesus is absolutely unique in something, you know, he's the first one to sort of connect resurrection to Torah, which is unlikely. He's probably part of a tradition, but this has been thought about and going on since, you know, pre-Christian times, I guess. Yeah, yeah we don't really know exactly when people decided that the resurrection of the dead has to have been in the Torah, or at least you could find it in the Torah. It's hard to get a date on it, but I, I would feel very confident it's well before the first century of the Common Era. Mm. In other words, uh, you, you, I think you can look in, the, in Daniel 12, you have an expectation of resurrection of the dead, which picks up in certain language, older language in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, you can look at Enoch literature in uh, in uh, towards the end of the third century BC, or uh, you can find uh, in the same sort of expectation there. So I think among those who believed in it, who believed in the resurrection, I think they did think it was in continuity with the scripture, with, with the, the, the Torah, with the Pentateuch, and therefore I'm not surprised that the crowd uh, loved it. It's not plain sense, but here's a point your listeners need to reckon with. We all need to reckon with. Nobody in the first century thought in terms of anything like what we mean by plain, plain sense. Nobody interpreted the Bible according to the canons of plain sense, either historical criticism or some other uh, pre-modern notion of a narrow, contextual, historical, grammatical sense of Scripture. That's, uh, that's just a, a development from the Middle Ages and beyond that just didn't exist in, in any community in antiquity. Well, you know, we, I think we mentioned earlier, if not, uh, it's certainly true. You wrote another book with resurrection in the title, Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. Maybe, can you in, that book, in that book, I believe I mentioned, uh, I may have mentioned Kierkegaard. So at this point, would you mind if I took a leak of faith? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, go ahead. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be like, don't hang up. I'll be back in, 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 in 90 seconds, maybe less. Great. Okay. 
All right, I'm, I'm back now. I just have to okay, we're, we're back now. Okay, uh, we we're going to delete that forty minutes. Oh, good, good. There was nothing significant anyway. <laughs> no, the forty-minute break you just took. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay, that's fine. That, that, that's that's better. But when you get older, it's, 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 it's gets harder. But plus, so, so yeah, let me ask that question again. Um, yes. So you know, you have this book, Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son, and so it also clearly through the word resurrection ties in in some way with what we're talking about. So just you know, what's your main argument in that book, and how does that tie to what we've been talking about so far as it relates to resurrection? That book began when I used to teach 30-some years, years ago at the University of Chicago Divinity School. And I was teaching a seminar on the Joseph story. And it occurred to me that there is this theme that runs throughout Genesis and uh, elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible and becomes uh, uh, especially prominent in Second Temple and Rabbinic Judaism and early Christianity. The theme, I'm talking about the theme of a son who is chosen, maybe an unlikely choice, maybe a younger son or whatever, um, who meets with a father's favor. It's like uh, Jacob uh, loving, and that's the term that's actually used, Jacob loving Joseph, that is to say, preferring Joseph over his brothers and investing him with the, what's usually translated as the coat of many colors, the Ketonet Pasim. Um, and uh, the, the, the story goes like this, that the son is chosen, the son has, is, is given a, a especially high status, uh, beloved by his father, and then uh, seems to be lost, seems to be dead. There seems to be a separation between the two. You don't expect the son to come back. He pays enormous price for that special status. Uh, but then in the end, uh, he comes back. Uh, Jacob uh, returns uh, after uh, being in exile uh, because his brother uh, Esau wants to kill him. Uh, Joseph r returns. Uh, the best example of it, I think, is, the, is Genesis 22, what in Hebrew we call the Akedar, the Akedat Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac. Christians often call it the sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, and uh, there you have uh, not just that it looks as though the son will die, but the son will die in the hands of his father, reverently and obediently um, offering his son back to God in accordance with God's command to sacrifice uh, his son. And at the last minute, there's an intervention, and this doesn't happen. Uh, in the previous chapter, Genesis 21, at the last minute, there was an intervention in the case of Ishmael, who's not the favored son, and he too is restored. Angelic intervention at the last minute before the child dies, and he's restored. Uh, this seems to be a, 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 a very general pattern. I think the New Testament story of Jesus is picking up on that pattern and developing in its own direction. Uh, I think that, that uh, Jesus, the son of Joseph, is, uh, is very much thought of in terms of this particular uh, pattern of the chosen, beloved son who incurs the enmity, especially the enmity of the other brothers, the enmity of the unchosen, uh, and who nonetheless... Uh, uh, and who, uh, in that case, endures actual uh, death, and then, in fact, uh, is, is brought back through a resurrection. Of course, in the New Testament, this is then connected to the expectation of an apocalyptic resurrection, a general resurrection of the dead at the end of the time, which we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So uh, those, those two themes, uh, I think, have a lot in common with each other, namely death or parent death overcome. Uh, Jacob thinks Joseph is dead, uh, and turns out he isn't. Uh, Jacob himself, in a sense, recovers his spirit and his life, his vitality, uh, and he, he does not end up going to Sheol as he ex expected to. Uh, all that happens when he discovers that Joseph is alive. So I think there is a pattern. I even think the whole thing with Judah, Judas, uh, Judah selling out uh, uh, Jesus uh, probably is, uh, to some degree, midrashically derived from Genesis 37, where Judah suggests selling Joseph uh, to uh, to the caravan of Ishmaelites or uh, to the Midianites, however one resolves the uh, ambiguities at the end of Genesis 37. I think to some extent that's a Midrashic development out of that uh, story. But it's a very, very powerful story in antiquity. And if you think about it, the body of Isaac is almost never referred to again after Genesis 22. I think the only reference to it is early on in Genesis 26. Uh, I don't think there's any other reference to it in the Hebrew Bible. Other people 
claim to find it in various places. But by the time you get to late Second Temple Judaism and rabbinic Judaism, it's very, very powerful. It's a very, very powerful story. And to some extent, the Binding of Isaac, I think, has served as a template for the story of Jesus in early Christianity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Yeah, which is interesting why it doesn't seem to be cited directly, if I recall correctly. Yes, that, 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 yes, that is I mean, it's cited directly in Hebrews 11. Yeah. That he does come back uh, in parabole. I think it says, you know, parabolically or whatever. Right. I mean, with Paul, you know, yes. Paul talks about Abraham. I mean, if I were Paul, I'd be all over that. Yeah. But he's, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I mean, that that is a valid uh, consideration. He does have that statement in Romans 8, I believe Romans 8.32, that something like, uh, you know, he who did not withhold his only son, uh, will he not give us all the other blessings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That language describes God, for Paul, Romans 8, God, just as Je- Jesus has been uh, uh, reimagined in or imagined in the temp- under the template, of, in the template of Isaac, well, what does that do to God? It makes God into a kind of Abraham figure. God did not spare his son, using the Greek word phedomai, which is a Septuagint, the uh, Jewish Greek translation of Genesis 22 is the verb uses as the verb for you did not withhold your son addressed to Abraham. God, in other words, is revisioned as a kind of Abraham figure in Romans 8, just as Jesus is revisioned or envisioned as a kind of Isaac figure. So I think there is a, a, a subtle allusion in that text and maybe elsewhere to the, uh, to the uh, binding of Isaac. But you're right, it's not as explicit as you would expect. Right. Uh, well, boy, gosh, we have so much here to talk about. Do you want to take another break? No, I'm happy. I can keep okay. <laughs> Hey, um, I, I hope this is a, cause we're, we're sort of coming close to our time here and it's what, what time is it by you? 820? 820, yeah. Past your bedtime. Well, uh, you know, I, I have three more books to write tonight. Okay. <laughs> that shouldn't be a problem. Um, you, you mentioned the word return. 
regarding Joseph. Right. And I can't help but think of the return from exile. Correct. Uh, could you, in, in, do you know what Twitter is? I've heard of it. I heard of it. I understand President Trump uses it. A lot. But yeah. you're limited to 140 characters. I'm not going to yeah. ask you to do that. But can, can you tie in succinctly? Because that's, the, you, you know, your book, Resurrection and the Restoration of Israel. Like, what does that even mean? And, you know, just ex explain that briefly, if you can. That's a lot to ask of someone. Well, I'll, I'll try my best. Uh, certainly at the Babylonian exile in the 6th century, the Jewish kingdom, the Israelite kingdom of Judah, uh, had at least temporarily come to an end. Uh, the elites were uh, exiled to Babylonia, uh, and it looked as though this is the, the end. Uh, but given the promise of land, given the promise to the people of Israel, which very much connected with the land of Israel, they didn't seem to, everybody didn't seem to have given up that expectation they'd be returned. And then with the rise of the Persians around 539, you see uh, that, in fact, the Babylonian hegemony came to an end, and some Jews were, uh, were allowed or, or actually followed the, 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 up the option of returning to the land of Israel and uh, eventually rebuilding the temple and resettling there. So you could say in that period... Uh, you didn't have a, a, a kind of national restoration. And a lot of the oracles that seem to predict this, or that urge the Jews to leave Babylonia and, and to believe in the possibility of this miracle and so forth, a lot of those which you find in, in what we critical scholars call 2nd Isaiah, Isaiah 40 through 55, or what some scholars call 3rd Isaiah 56 through 66, you do see that this is, uh, this is happening. That they, in fact, uh, that there is this belief that everything has been reversed. Exile has now become repatriation. Um, they're coming back. And exile is death. And exile is associated with death, with punishment, with separation from God. Uh, but all those things are now being overcome, being reversed miraculously, unexpectedly, or naturally, I should say, unexpectedly, expected only through faith, uh, through uh, faith in the divine promise that it seems so totally discredited. All these things now are actually being, uh, those, those horrible conditions are being uh, reversed. And I think that connects with this apocalyptic eschatology that I talked about. I think there's something proto-apocalyptic or whatever in Second Isaiah and in uh, much of Ezekiel, much of the literature of 6th century and uh, late 6th century BCE. Uh, so I think that does connect to eventually to this theme of resurrection of, of the dead. There's a national restoration. Ezekiel in chapter 37 has a vision. He describes it as a vision of the valley of the, of the dry bones, uh, which is a vision of national restoration. It's not a, va a vision of individual resurrection. It's certainly not a, a vision of uh, immortality of the soul or anything like that. But you have these. The, you have a nation in effect coming out of out of exile, a nation coming out of uh, having a new exodus, except now the new exodus is the exodus from the grave. Uh, and so there you see this language of, uh, of resurrection, admittedly, I openly acknowledge, in a parable uh, used to describe the restoration of the nation. In One thing I would, I would insist upon is that in the Hebrew Bible, really I think this is fair to say for classical Judaism and classical Christianity in general, Resurrection is a corporate event. It's not addressed to disconnected individuals. It's a corporate event uh, that takes place in history or at the end of history, however one wants to put it, collectively, all together. It's a reversal of death, not an avoidance of death. And uh, it's very much connected to God's fulfilling his corporate uh, uh, promises, his promises uh, to the people of Israel uh, to restore them and to restore the temple, and to uh, vindicate his own claims to sovereignty and to worship. So just to kind of summarize, I, I think hearing these different nuances of, by the time we get to around the time that the New Testament's being uh, written, maybe a little before then, we have this idea of resurrection tied to immortality. So the individual soul is everlasting in some sense. And we have this idea of, apocalyptic, which is not that we have an everlasting soul, but that we will be bodily 
uh, the, the people of God will be bodily raised up at the end of times during this uh, period where God um, comes back to restore things. And then there's this third sense of like the corporate restoration or transformation of Israel, and maybe even tied to that, the idea of the, the restoration uh, or resurrection within a family line. So right. you, are, you're, you are living on in your family line. And would it be fair to say that, that would it be really clear to d- distinguish between each of these senses at that time where they're starting to kind of co-mingle? And yeah. when you're reading these texts, are you able to tell which one they're talking about? Uh, it depends what text you're talking about, but I think those are all different images, of different refractions of the same larger reality I wouldn't take any of them terribly literally. I certainly wouldn't set them in opposition to each other. I think they commingle, as you put it uh, very well, uh, to a very high degree. And uh, distinguish between them radically, I think, would not work. I think that they are, as I say, refractions of the same overall expectation, often expressed in poetry, often using language of mythology and poetry to express something that really shouldn't be allowed to harden into a a propositional doctrine, but there's a doctrinal aspect to it. It is an expectation of something that will happen that does define these communities early on. So the Mishnah says, well, the Jew who denies this, in some sense, is is out of that community. He's he's denied his his place in the world to come, his portion in the world to come. Uh, You can see that it's an important idea but I don't think it can be separated from matters like the death and resurrection of the beloved son, uh, family restoration, uh, historical restoration, the vindication of God's good name as he fulfills his promises to the Jewish people, uh, the restoration of the Jewish people uh, in the land of Israel, and uh, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. These things all uh, cohere. It's very hard to, to, it's I think unrealistic to try to put them uh, asunder from each other. Mm-hmm. Well, John, sadly, we're coming to the end of the age. Oh, good. Has the resurrection of the dead happened? Is that it's already started? I just haven't well, noticed. We're going to find out if it's real or not. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess just in closing here, first of all, thank you very much for being here with us. We had a wonderful time. Uh, normally, we would ask people where can they find you on the internet, but you don't do that. No, I'm very, I'm very low tech. I only recently found out I could use my AM radio in the afternoon. Oh, good for you. That's wonderful. Yeah, okay. You can. You know, it's, it's mislabeled. Just don't put it next to you in the bathtub. Oh, that could be a problem. Afternoon, evening, anytime. Don't do that. But yeah. Um, yeah. How about this? Are you are you working on any books at this point or any projects? Well, I had out about a year and a half or almost two years ago a book that you were kind enough to write about. And namely the love of God. Right. Uh, and uh, so uh, since then, I've been playing around with some ideas about the history of the Sabbath. Oh. And uh, I tell my friends I'm working on the Sabbath. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so uh, I think you pick topics just that make for good jokes. They make for good jokes, yeah. Uh, so, uh, but I don't have any, any particularly overwhelming insight on that subject uh, as yet, I'm doing it. Well, I'm sure it'll be brewing, and when it comes out, it'll be wonderful to read. So, yeah, I don't know, but I certainly enjoyed talking to you. You're, you're really a couple of uh, expert readers of not only my work, but more importantly, the Bible itself. I appreciate very much your questions and the conversation. Thank you. We're doing our best on our end, so you keep but, it up on yours. Well, I really, I really appreciate your whole podcast. They're very, very good. Thank you, John. Thanks, thanks, thanks so much, and uh, blessings. And uh, it was good to talk with you again. Likewise, likewise. Be well. Bye. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us for this episode. We would encourage you to, even though John doesn't have much of a presence online. He doesn't know what online is. Right. Um, Dagnabbit. <laughs> but Back in my day. Anyway. But you can still, uh, his books are very familiar with the online world. You can find them Amazon, anywhere fine books are sold and fine books they are. So, again, we mentioned in the intro, maybe checking out Sinai and Zion. Mm-hmm. or the creation a creation and the persistence of evil might be good text though we didn't talk about those here would be good introductions to Levinson's work and just the influence again that uh, I think he's had on both of our our lives mm-hmm. in addition to our work mm-hmm. absolutely
Absolutely, yeah. And uh, also, folks, you know, we will continue extending the invitation to you to join our online community at Patreon. Uh, this is a part of a vision that Jared and I have had now for about three years to not just us talk, but to create uh, a space for people who are pilgrims, who are thinking through issues and maybe who don't really have a community to belong to, which is, I got to tell you, a lot of people who email me or message me or whatever. And it's, there are a lot of people out there looking for language and looking for a community. And that's always sort of been our vision for this. So we have the Bible for normal people. We have our Patreon page, um, the Bible for normal people. What do you call it? Forward slash? Front slash? Front slash. Patreon.com. Patreon.com. Front, front slash. slash. The Bible for normal people. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know the address of this thing. It's too complicated. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, and, and, and support us. And there's content available there for people who are members for as little as a dollar a month. And we appreciate it. It gives us a chance to keep doing the kinds of things that we want to do to build this community and it's a privilege for us to do that and it's a privilege to have you all be a part of that so thank you very much thank you for listening and uh, we hope to hear from you next time